theyeshiva.net. So this couple comes to the Rav, they're having Shalom bias issues. Present company excluded always. And uh, he tells the rabbi, you know, it didn't work out the way I thought it would. The rabbi says, what's the issue? He says, uh, my wife, when we got married, said, let's strike a deal in order to create harmony. You're an argumentative person. I am an argumentative person. You have your mishagas and I have my mishagas. And you're confrontational. I'm confrontational. You're impossible. I'm impossible. Why don't we make a deal to make this work? Your husband says, sure, go ahead. What's the deal? She says, the deal is very simple. All the big issues in life, you decide. I don't deal with them. You don't even have to run them by me. You make the decisions, you act on them. All the small decisions in life, I decide, I don't run them by you. What do you say? The husband says, Gewaldik. (laughs) Can you get a better deal? All the big decisions are up to him. Beautiful. So the Rav says, No, so what's the problem? Very respectful deal. He says, It's been a few years and it's not working out the way I thought it would. I don't see it happening. So the rabbi turns to the wife and says, maybe you can clarify what you meant with the deal. She said, what I meant was very simple. All the big decisions in life, for example, what should be the U.S. policy with Iran? (laughs) What do we do about global warming? What do we do with ISIS? What do we do with Afghanistan, with Iraq? What do we do with the Arab Spring that turned into a nightmare? What do we do about the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico? Big, huge, major decisions. This is up to my husband. I don't mix in. He doesn't even have to tell me his decision. He could give his direct opinion to Benjamin Netanyahu, to President Obama, to John Kerry. He doesn't even have to notify me. All the small decisions in life. For example, where we live, which school we send our kids to, which shul we daven, where we're going next summer, because we're never going back to that same place that we were last summer. Present company excluded, of course. How much money I spend on the credit card. Small, inconsequential, valueless decisions. These I make, and I don't run them by you. Perfect recipe for harmony. Truth be told beyond anecdotes, I was once giving a lecture, it was a very different type of crowd. You'll hear from the, somebody asked a question and says, Rabbi Jacobson, is it not true that in Judaism, at least in Orthodox Judaism, women are second class citizens? I said, sure, meet my mother-in-law, meet my mother and meet my wife and then you'll tell me. Maybe it's the other way around. They said, look, the whole Bible, the whole Talmud, it's all men, 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 men. Why? Where are the women? I said, really? Let's take the book of Genesis. If there's a one pattern in Genesis and Bereshus, you'll see it immediately. The small decisions are made by the men. The big, cataclysmic, historic decisions of destiny are almost never made by not one man. For example, who decided that Adam should eat from the tree of knowledge? We know who. Who decided, for example, that Yishmael should not be living together with Yitzchak in the home? Who decided that Yaakov is getting the blessings instead of Esau? Who decided that Yaakov is marrying the wrong woman? 
Who decided that Moshe Rabbeinu as an infant should be taken out of the Nile River rather than be left there as all other Jewish children? All the biggest decisions that impact history till today, 5,000 years later, were made by women. It's a fact. You can read through Bereshus. The smaller decisions, okay, they let the men decide. Now, based on that, let's take this one step further. There's an old question, Rashi asks it actually, the first Rashi of Chumash asks the question. It seems like the whole Sefer Bereshus Till Parsha's boy doesn't really fit into Torah. It's more of a history book. We would think Torah means instructions. The word Torah comes from the word Hayra, instructions. So Rashi says, Ma tam pasach bebereshis. The Torah should begin with the first mitzvah. The first mitzvah is hachodesh hazelachem rosh chadashim to establish the new day of the month, the Jewish calendar, which was said right by Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, and then move on. Now, of course, I never understood Rashi's question. Thank God we have Bereshis, Til Parshas Boy. This is what makes your Chumash classes exciting. Parshas Bereshis, Til Parshas Boy is fascinating. It's dramatic. I got that. But from Rashi's point of view, it's like it doesn't really fit into the genre, right? That's the word. It doesn't fit into the genre of Torah. It's the stories. It's beautiful, interesting, dramatic, thrilling, perplexing, enigmatic stories. But it doesn't really fit into the umbrella of what Torah is. So Rashi gives his famous, powerful answer, the first Rashi of Parshas Berechus on the whole Torah. And the answer is, is going to come a day when the nations of the world are going to turn to the Jewish people and they're going to say to them two words, Listim Atem, you are occupiers, you are thieves, you have stolen somebody else's land. You read this Rashi, you would think it's written, it was written in 2015. Basically, the world is going to say, the United Nations has 192 members. There are 192 members in the United Nations. From the 192, there's only one nation whose very legitimacy is continuously questioned and whose rights to have one land is always in dispute and never taken for granted. One from 192. While there are 21 Muslim states, officially Muslim states, 21, the Jewish people's entitlement to have one is continuously questioned with the accusation of two words. Listim atem. You're thieves, you're robbers. Just because you suffered a tragedy in Europe doesn't allow, doesn't give you permission to take away somebody else's land. Rashi says to answer that question, we have the whole Sefer Bereshis till, till boy. Fascinating. Just to answer that question. Now I ask you a question. The anti-Semites care about the first Rashi in Bereshis? Rashi means the Torah is telling it to the Jewish people. Because the main problem of somebody calling you a thief is not somebody calling you a thief. It's that you believe them. When you believe them, when you internalize it, now you lost your morale, you lost your confidence, you lost your courage. And I want to tell you a secret about the Jewish people. It's very hard to defeat the Jewish people on the battlefield. Because they have, a cat has nine lives and they have nine million lives. You want to defeat the Jewish people, you know how you do it? You defeat them morally. If you could convince the Jewish people they're morally wrong, it's a far greater victory for the enemy than defeating them on the battlefield. Because Jews are very sensitive to being moral. If you could convince 
the establishment of the Jewish people. You're thieves, you're abusers, you violate human rights, you engage in war crimes. That spells a very deep defeat. That's, this is what happened in our generation in Israel. Many Jews began believing that they're thieves. Listamata. And in order to dispel that, Rashi says, you have the whole Beratius which basically teaches them that God created the world and God owns the world and he took one little sliver of land, not very large, the size of Dallas International Airport. And he gave it to one little nation called the Jewish people which never constituted, which still doesn't constitute even 1% of the rest of humanity. Then it's if... Rabbeinu Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, the famous Rosh Hashiva of Alajim, as well as in his commentary on Chumash, known as Ha'amek Dover, as well as a commentary, a Hasidic commentary by the Slonim Rebbe, known as Nesivis Shalom, they take a different approach. And they explain, although the Nesiv and the Nesivis Shalom do it a little bit differently, but the theme is similar, they explain that the introduction of Bereshis, Til Parshas Boy, is the introduction to the laws of Yiddishkeit. Because Yiddishkeit has two components. There are the laws of Yiddishkeit, but there is the neshama of Yiddishkeit. A person could follow all the halachas. A person could be an expert in the laws of Erevin, in the laws of Muktzeh, in the laws of Boyer, in the laws of Schitta, in the laws of Kashrus, in the laws of interest, in the laws of Tfilim, in the laws of Tzitzis, in the laws of Shkia, and in the laws of Lulav and Esther. But they're missing a soul. And sometimes they're missing a deep sensitivity to what it means to be a Jew. Not what I do, what I don't do. Who I am as a human being. My attitudes, my inner Weltanschauung, my emotional dispositions, my relationships, my moods. This you can't articulate in Shulchan Aruch. Go, get right a halachi, you gotta be a mensch. You gotta work on yourself, you gotta confront your insecurities. This is what Sefer Bereshis is about. Sefer Bereshis is not halacha. Sefer Bereshis is the introduction to understand the struggles of the human psyche. You know, they tell a mice, it's a dramatic anecdote, but I think it makes the point. This fellow was very, very poor and hungry, and he goes to this rich man, and he knocks on the door, he says, please, I haven't eaten in three days. Abyssal essence, and give me something to eat. The man says, I don't feed schnurrers like you. You can go to the shul, you can go to the shtibel. He says, please, I can't go anywhere. I haven't eaten in a few days. I'm going to die. Give me anything. Give me from your garbage can an old smelly piece of fish left over from Shabbos. He says, that I can do. And he takes out from the dustbin an alta gazaltzina, salty, horrible, decayed piece of fish. He gives, gives it to the fellow. He was so hungry. Mumbish puts it in his mouth. Within nine seconds, it was down his gullet. And it was so horrific that as he walks out, he faints. So they take him to the hospital. This man comes home in the evening and he tells his wife, you know, I, I have to go somewhere. She says, where are you going tonight? He says, you remember we had a guest who came today to eat and I gave him a piece of fish. Unfortunately, he fell ill. And he's in the hospital. I have a big mitzvah called Bikr Chayl. I have to go visit him. The next, the next day he tells his wife, I can't come home today. She says, why? He says, Nebuch, our guest who I went to visit, Nebuch, he passed away. It's a big mitzvah to go to the Levi. I have to go to the Levi. Sure. Next night, he says, I can't come home tonight. Why? He left. He left Yisoyimim. There's a big mitzvah. Nechem Avelim. I have to go to Shiva call. Okay, go. He comes home from the Shiva call, smiling, happy from ear to ear. He's kvelling. 
His wife never saw him so happy in 25 years. Miserable man for 25 years. Suddenly that night, he's quelling. She looks at him and says, Yank! Why are you so happy? You're coming from Nebuchadnezzar. I have to say this in Yiddish and then I'll translate. He looks at her and he says, How can I not be happy? How can I not be happy? Look how many great mitzvahs I accomplished with one smelly, decadent, horrible piece of fish. Four of the greatest mitzvahs. Where do you get such a deal in life? Of course, this is a dramatic, a dramatic illustration of somebody who may follow all the rules, but completely doesn't get it, completely alienated from the essence of Yiddishkeit. That's what Sefer Bereshis is about, according to these great commentators. It's a book not about what to do, but about who you are. It's not about action, but about character development, which manifests in action. It's not about technical, robotic maneuvers, routines, and schedules, which is, of course, vital and indispensable, but it's about the soul, the core, the heart, the pnimius, that which is inside. And a human life must combine a guf and an ashama. And Torah is a reflection of the human being. It says, Adam in So it says in Svarim, Torah is like a person. There's the neshama of Torah, and there's the guf of Torah. And together, the synthesis of the two together creates a healthy, a vibrant, a wholesome, and a happy human being and Jew. And you'll notice that a major theme throughout Bereshis is relationships. At first glance, you'll forgive me, they seem very, very dysfunctional. They seem very, very problematic. But let's face it, there's not one story in Chumash or Tanakh that makes sense. You all know from your Tanakh classes in school, Every story you have to struggle with. Why? Why is there no story in the whole Tanakh? You finish, they say, and they lived happily ever after. There's never a Cinderella ending. Always complicated. How can they do it? Why? What? When? What's going on there? How could anybody think of this? I mean, down the line. The reason is, or at least one of the reasons is, you know, when you come, you're going to come back to your home, and uh, you'll walk into your home, either here in the mountains or in the city. I don't mean to mention any negative things. And uh, you'll see the tablecloth, the white tablecloth, or beige tablecloth over your dining, beautiful dining room table. And it's on the table, and it's smooth, it's straight, there's no creases. So you go on, you move on to the kitchen and to your other duties or errands. But what happens if you walk in and you see that the tablecloth is elevated? Every few inches it's elevated. There's creases. Here it's up, here it's down. Then you realize that there must be something under it. And you lift up the tablecloth to see what is below. The Torah and the Tanakh were not written to make people feel comfortable. They were written to make people think, to challenge people. And that's why there's no tablecloth that's smooth in the Tanakh. Why? Because if it's smooth, you just move on. You read the story, beautiful, great, next. When it's full of bumps, when it's full of creases, when it's full of senseless 
themes that challenge us and disturb us, now we're compelled to lift up the tablecloth and see what's under it. What's, what's under it? And of course, the under is layer upon layer like an onion. Endless layers, it's a search for life. And you go back to the same story and each year you discover a deeper depth and a deeper message and a deeper layer. And what I want to share with you today is a few instances in Chumash Bereshis where innocent statements or complex or perplexing stories really highlight to us some very profound messages about an approach to relationships. Now, in my notes, I prepared six different items in Bereshis. Knowing myself, there's no way I will probably cover even three. But I always, I'm an optimist, I always hope for the best and expect the worst. Just joking. So, I'm going to start. Let's start. And Be'ezer Hashem, we'll see what we can cover. The first description of a relationship in Chumash Bereshis is, of course, the first couple. And this was, no pun intended, a marriage made in heaven. Quite literally, Adam and Chava. And it wasn't an easy marriage. It was a complicated marriage. As every good marriage, especially one arranged by God himself, meaning Bashert. With Adam and Chava, nobody could say it's a mistake. That... So I was doing a chef, I was doing a chuppah the other day, and it wasn't a, it was a traditional Jewish family, but not a family so much etched in Jewish education and observance. So there's sometimes a very beautiful advantage of doing such marriages because people don't take anything for granted and they ask questions that growing up you never thought of. You know, it's the way it's supposed to be, right? Sometimes it's very good to have at your Shabbos table somebody who was never at a Shabbos table. Because, wait, that's, why do you do that? Why do you do that? Why do you do that? And it makes people think, which is generally a good thing. I mean, not for everybody, but, uh, but for some people it's, it's a good thing to think. Uh, it's a good, it's, it's not bad at least, okay? So this woman comes over to me. And she was reading the Sheva, under the Chuppah you do the Sheva Bracha. So she was reading the English translation. She says, this is very offensive. I'm like, okay, what now? I start thinking about the Sheva Bracha. I don't think it is. Sheva Brachas are very beautiful. They're beautiful, beautiful blessings. I mean, all the way. The last blessing, it's, it's emotional, it's majestic, it's, it's beautiful. It talks about a wedding, first of all, in very glowing and romantic terms which you'll barely hear today in the United States of America. And also it links every wedding with the past and the present and the future and generations and Adam and Chava. She tells me, Hashem, bring joy to these beloved friends, to the Chassan and the Kala, just like your creator, the creator has brought joy to the first couple in the Garden of Eden. She looks at me and she says, really? Since that couple, there was no happy couple? When you want to say, bring Simcha to this couple, it should be like the Simcha of Adam and Chava and Ganeidin. So for 5,000 years, there was not one marriage that worked. And therefore, the only reference point you can find is Adam and Chava in the garden. And he, she tells me, besides, I don't think their relationship was so happy. They got created... She right away gave him food, right? She made his diet for him. She was telling him what to eat, what not to eat, how to eat, what to eat. And since then, everything went downhill. 
And the husbands always say, from here you learn that you never tell me what to eat, and what not to eat, and what I should eat. That was just a joke. You could tell your husband what to eat. You should probably. And look what happened. Hashem tells Adam, why did you eat? And you know what he tells her? It was her fault. Rashi says, completely ungratefully, gives him a spouse to be his companion for life, and then he blames her for all of his problems. Sounds familiar? <laughs> so I tell, this, I tell this woman, I said, listen to me. Very good, excellent question. Excellent question. But there's something very profound in this blessing. Adam and Chava may have had issues. One issue they didn't have. Never did it happen through the 930 years of their marriage. How long were they married for? They were married for long, but there was no shvigger. So. <laughs> no shvigger, no shvigger. All the years, imagine 900 years you married to a guy. Yeah. Never did it happen once that she thought to herself, I should have listened to my mother and not gone for him. You know, he's a talented guy, he's a smart guy, but it's not what I need. Look at my neighbor. She's married to a simple fellow, Mishkin Grace not no big genius, no rocket scientist. But you know what? He's a man. She helps. He's not moody. He's always changing light bulbs, <laughs> taking out the garbage, unloading the car, loading the car, you know, in the country, back and forth. You upload, unload, upload. Every few hours you have to upload, unload half your house. <laughs> Especially when you have to take the ketchup and the red sauce and all the tuna and the sardines and they open up. So he's uploading, unloading. I don't know what he does for a living, my neighbor's husband, but he's always a schlepped and schlepped and schlepped. A ganzetuk schlepter. My husband, I asked him to take out the garbage a week later. A week later, it's still there. Maybe I should have listened to my mother. Maybe I needed a different type of person. Never did it happen that Adam Arishan came home at night and said, you know what? I could have done better. It never happened with Adam and Chava. You know why? There was nobody else. Adam knew this is it. Chava knew this is it. There are issues, of course. The struggles, of course. But they never doubted that this is their soulmate. I told her, this is the bracha we give. Whatever happens to you in your life, you should never doubt that this is yours. This is your soulmate. You know why? Because the energy some of us spend in thinking, what if? If we would take that energy and use it for actually renovating and fixing up that which can be fixed, we can turn many of our relationships into blossoming experiences. But so many people walk around throughout their life and their main energy, mental energy, is invested into the question, what if? What if I would have done this? What if I would have not done this? What if this? What if that? All the what ifs in life. Take that very mental energy, it's a lot, and convert it into a productive plan for the future. And that's a great blessing. So we bless the couple, like Adam and Chava, 
You have to work things out, but never doubt that this is it. And when I say never, I mean in cases that are uh, manageable and can be worked with. I'm not talking about in those extreme and very difficult situations of abuse and unacceptable behavior of abuse, etc., which then one is not obligated to think this is it and I have to be abused throughout my life because uh, then one has to really get the support within themselves and from other people to be able to know what is normal, what is ordinary, what is part of people's mishagasana and idiosyncrasies and what is absolutely traumatic, tragic, abusive and so forth. Part of that is when the Torah describes their relationship, it says, Adam yada eschava. Adam knew Chava, and she, she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain and Heva. Of course, as Chazal say, from knowing somebody, you can't have children. But Yada doesn't mean he knew her. Yada is a euphemism for intimacy, for relationship. But the Torah uses the word Yada, nothing else, Yada. That means that intimacy is really about knowing the person. And that's fascinating. When the Torah wants to describe the first experience of a relationship between a husband and a wife, it's described in the terms of knowledge. It's not like the Tanakh shies away from explicitly describing relationships. We have it plenty. But here the term is Yada. What is Yada? He knew her. Because what is really intimacy? Intimacy is into me see. The ability to be able to know another human being completely and vulnerably. It doesn't begin with the physical. It begins with the emotional and the spiritual. A person ought to spend time knowing their spouse. Really knowing them. Not knowing them the way I want them to be, but knowing them based on who they really are. Nietzsche once said, we don't love other people, we love our version of them. We sometimes create our own version of who our children are. You have to know your child. Don't create your delusional version of your child because that's what you wanted. Don't create a delusional version of yourself because that's what you were told you need to be. Don't create a delusional version of your husband because that's what you were expecting or anticipating. I have to know who I am. I have to know who my wife is. I have to know who my husband is. I have to know who my child is. Of course, every one of us needs to grow, can grow, should grow. But growth means growing into yourself, your full potential. Lech lecha You're leaving your land, but the leaving is to go closer to your atzmius, to the shayrish of your neshama. I don't have your neshama, you don't have my neshama. I don't have your challenges, you don't have my challenges. And this is where communication in marriage becomes pivotal. Now you're thinking, he's speaking to the women about communication. Go give a drusha to the men and tell them that they should communicate. Send them my regards and ask them to communicate. <laughs> but communication includes the knowledge that different people communicate in different ways. And that's part of what I have to respect. And not try to impose my experience or my nature on another person because that's impossible to do. I saw the title of today's lecture, Men and Women Are Different. Good morning, America. I don't think 
If you could please put your phones on vibrate. I know my customers. That's why I requested it in the beginning. But it's a good sign. It means you're all Jewish. <laughs> Jews don't listen the first time when you ask them. So, I don't think there's anyone sitting in this room who really ever believed that men and women are mummish identical and it's just because of different elements. In nurture, you know, we give the girls dolls to play with and we give the boys uh, uh, machine guns, uh, baby, baby knives to play with, so therefore they become different. Of course there are many similarities. Every man is a woman and every woman is a man and masculinity and femininity are intertwined. But the difference between genders is an authentic one, not a bad one, an authentic one. There's a difference biologically that nobody can doubt, of course, but there's a difference mentally, emotionally, and from a Jewish perspective... We know spiritually as well. Their shoyosh hanashan is a different one. Just like every person is unique, man or woman, and every member in a family is unique, certainly the gender difference that the Rebbeinu Shalom created between Zachar and Akeva, Adam and Chava, even though together they're B'Tselem Alakim, but there are distinct, distinct qualities. And part of a, a good relationship is learning to recognize this, to be able to laugh about it, and to be able to enjoy it. Now, initially, the title that I sent, or actually what, one of the titles that was suggested, but then for whatever reason that wasn't used, but I'm going to talk about it, men and women are different, is men are waffles and women are spaghetti. I know that sounds very mystical and Kabbalistic, <laughs> and very, very spiritual. But I want to explain to you what I mean. And I don't mean here to make a general comment about every single man and every single woman, just to identify patterns that often are often true, even if not in every situation and every marriage. The difference between waffles and spaghetti, and I know some of you after this lecture may go to have waffles, <laughs> I that, or pasta, although both of them would be terrible to have. Instead, you should take a Caesar salad. <laughs> but whether you're going to have waffles or pasta, you'll know what I'm saying. Waffles, each waffle is an independent square. And when you put the syrup in one waffle, you want to make sure it doesn't climb up the wall and the mechitza, separating it from the other waffle, because that can ruin your whole breakfast and your whole lunch. The syrup goes in this waffle and doesn't cross borders to the other waffle. We talk about boundaries. With spaghetti, it doesn't work that way. There's no such a thing. One strand of pasta individuated, autonomous, self-contained. Every strand of spaghetti of luxury is intertwined and interconnected and integrated and interwoven and interlaced with hundreds of other pieces of pasta, especially when you prepare that big pot of luxury which you may do tonight for dinner. Every piece is connected with another piece of luxury. Men are waffles, Women are often spaghettis. Meaning, the way men's brains work, for the most part, is we have filing cabinets in our brain. Look, you could even see them. If you look at me closely, you could see the filing cabinets. And each filing cabinet has another name on it. And within each filing cabinet, there are files with different folders, with different names, and they never touch each other. We have a folder called the car. We have a folder called the house. We have a folder called the children. You'll forgive me, we have a folder called the wife. We have a folder called work. We have a folder called shiurim. We have a folder called health. We have a folder for everything in life. We have a separate folder. And when we have to deal with an issue in the car, or in the house, or with the kids, or whatever it is, we go to our brain, 
We go to that filing cabinet. We open it up very slowly to make sure nothing else moves. We take out that folder without touching any other folder. We look at the issue. Either we deal with it, usually not. We put it back in the same place, making sure it does not come in any contact with anything else. A woman's brain, on the other hand, is like the World Wide Web. WWW dot. It's a highway of the Gansevelt. You know what cyberspace looks like. There's a lot going on there and everything is interconnected. And everything is interwoven. She experiences life in a singular, integrated, holistic fashion. Everything affects almost everything. Waffles, spaghetti. By the way, in our brain, we have a center filing cabinet. It's the biggest. On it is a big sign that says nothing. We men love hanging out in that filing cabinet. In fact, if we wouldn't have to work and make a living, we would be there most of our lives. So when you ask your husband, so what are you feeling? So what are you going through? And he's like, nothing. There's no answer that makes women more sugar than nothing, because they don't know what it means. What do you mean you're feeling nothing? My heart is like mummish, experiencing everything. I like nothing. And then some of us get suspicious. Mm, he's not telling me what's going on in his life. No, 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 he's not hiding anything. By us, nothing means nothing. We love hanging out there. We sometimes feel nothing. We know nothing. You know, you go to an event, how was the lecture? Right, the opening joke was not bad. He was talking to you. So this woman comes home with her husband, and she decides she goes. To, she went to the seminar in relationships for twelve weeks. She's going to be a great wife. They're going to have a great marriage. She looks at him and she says, "Let's have a conversation tonight." And he also went to the seminar at least for two times. He says, "Of course, of course." And you both sit down on the couch after dinner and you start talking. It's like, wow, it's a dream come true. This man hasn't opened his mouth in 18 years. Almost not said a word besides technical things. You try talking, but there's nobody, there's nobody home. You know, he goes to the newspaper, goes to television, goes to his iPhone, goes to the website, goes to the safer lab, whatever it is. But now he's listening. And he looks at you and you start talking. And of course, what? There's always what to talk about. You start talking. He looks and he says, how was your day? That's a place, a fair way, place to go to. Little does he know what's coming. So you start telling him how your day was. It's hard for him to understand how within seven, eight hours, so many events, so many events should, un, should unfold. So you start talking, the first thing is the cleaners ruined the dress, it was $700, and he doesn't want to give you back the money. So he opens his filing cabinet, he goes to a section called cleaners, it's like in the way end, Remember, he only has three suits. He doesn't have, you know, he has one pair of shoes. So uh, the way in, he takes out cleaners and he makes a mental mark. My wife's dress was ruined by the cleaners. He doesn't want to pay her back. Okay. But now after 10 seconds, you go on to the next subject. And that is you really don't like your cleaning help. You have to get rid of her. So now he goes to another filing cabinet called cleaning help. He takes out the folder. He starts, now it's 20 seconds. You're off to what happened at your sister-in-law's bar mitzvah. 
What happened at that bar mitzvah was unforgivable. The comment that Pliny ben Pliny or Pliny is but Pliny is ben after you offered blah 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 blah. So now he goes to family issues. He takes out the folder. Sister-in-law bar mitzvah makes a mental mark. Thirty seconds later, you want to quit your job for next year. It's too stressful, too much pressure. Your boss is obnoxious. He now goes to the filing cabinet called work. Takes out. Now it's 37, 38 seconds, you start discussing the schools for next year. You heard about this teacher, this principal, this school, let's change. Okay, it's now 47 seconds, you discuss the leak in the bathroom. He is now, at this point, closing and opening filing cabinets very, very swiftly. It's two minutes, you covered probably 83 subjects. But he has different folders, so he's going mummish back and forth, writing it down, writing it down. It's now three and a half minutes, you're on subject 196. This poor guy is sweating inside. He's looking at you, but he's sweating. Because... And at this point, you, you still are just beginning. This is just, this is just warm up. So at this point, he, he has a choice. The most natural thing for him to do is kill himself. <laughs> the problem is, he loves you. And he doesn't want to leave his wife, chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, a widow. So he does the second best option, falls asleep. <laughs> As you see your husband falling asleep, you're very hurt. You just are expressing your experiences. You want to share a moment of bonding. And this shlamazel, shlamiel is sleeping. Little do you know, he's sleeping because he loves you so, so much. And the only alternative would be to shoot himself in his brains. <laughs> now, <laughs> I hope... <laughs> you, you know this young man emails me, says, Jacobson, I have a question. I'm like, yeah, what's your brilliant question? He's like, it was Sunday. I went shopping with my wife all day. And you know, for men, shopping is a complex experience. So if they don't feel productive for one moment, it's like they, they want to know why they're alive and so on and so forth. Window shopping for them is like mamash gehenim in this, in, this, in this world. There's a, there's a deep reason for it. I'll tell you in a moment why. So he's like, I went shopping. Seven hours I went shopping. Seven hours. We're on the line, Costco, wherever they were, paying. And she turns to me and she says, you know, it would be no, so nice if we could spend time with each other. <laughs> I felt that she's so ungrateful. My mummish gave away a whole day. We were together. What if we could spend time? I thought she'll say, it was so nice spending time with you. I told him, Rebbe, you really don't get it, do you? In your world... The external physical reality is what matters. Women are deeper. For them, the internal experience is what matters. Standing together in Costco, going from aisle to aisle, from aisle to aisle, then going to Home Depot, then going to struggle to find a couch for your house. In your world, is spending time. You were together in the same store. Your wife means spending time, <laughs> spending time connecting emotionally, 
looking at each other, sharing, sharing, opening up to each other. Va'adam yadez chava. He says, prove it to me. <laughs> I said, if you're married and you need proof, then I'm not sure I can help you. But I'll prove it to you. Last night you had a chasana. How long did it take you to get dressed? Tells me four minutes. I said, and your Rebetzin? He says, oh, it's always the same thing. I said, what the same thing? She put something on. I'm not in the mood of this. Doesn't fit. Something else, it's to this. I look this, I look that. No, an hour later, what happens? She looks at me, she says, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing to wear for this wedding. So what happened next? I realized when I'm going to the chasana. So what happened next? I said, let me see one of them. You put something on, you looked at it, and you said, wow, you look beautiful. What happened next? She had what to wear. How did that magic happen? I said, for you, clothes, you put on a piece of clothes, that's it. There's nothing to it. The emotional relationship doesn't exist. You live on an outer world. For her, having a garment doesn't mean you have it. It means you appreciate it. You feel good in it. It's connected to your soul. Your husband appreciates it. You have to focus on the panemius. The first step in a relationship is communication. And if you could laugh about the differences, it's almost like, you ever saw the look, you ever stood at the beach and you see how the wave hits the rock. There's like a majestic dance as the wave hits the rock and retreats and hits the rock again. That's what a good marriage is like. You can't both be waves. Everybody becomes spaghetti, it's meshigah. If everybody becomes waffles, but if the rock and the wave can hit each other and balance off each other, and you appreciate the artistic majesty of that fascinating reality called marriage, then communication is the key. Without communication, we assume things about people that we should never assume. Because we really don't know what's going on in their minds. I am fascinated how somebody says something, does something, we make assumptions who they are, what they mean, what they're thinking. Exactly the other way. It's exactly the opposite. Because there's no communication. We shouldn't assume things about our husband or about our wife. We should speak to them. We should ask them. We should engage in conversation. A lot of headaches would be avoided if we replace assumptions with absolute communication. Which now brings us to the next step. And here is my trivia question for those of you who teach Chumash. The word for love in Lashon HaKadosh is Ahava. When is the first mention of love, the word love, the word Ahava in Chumash? That's the fourth time. Yitzchak and Rivka is the second time. Very good. What's the first? That's the sixth time. What's the first? <laughs> yada is... Yada, no. I mean love. Ahava. Ahava. Not Yada. Anybody? Huh? Who, who loved Hevel? Cain killed Hevel. <laughs> Didn't love Hevel. No, it says, Vayisha Hashem el Hevel. Hashem turned to Hevel. 
Love, love. Anybody? Huh? Where's the Ahava and Lech Lecha? There's no love in Lech Lecha. Huh? Where does that say? Not Aharet, something else. Not Lech Lecha? Where? Atazai. Atazai. I see the classes of Beis Yaakov stayed with you. <laughs> Took too long. A very unlikely place, the Akeda. We, some of us say it every morning. The end of Ayera. Listen to this. Hashem turns to Avram and what does he say to him? Kachna, esbincha, esyechidcha, asher ahafta. Take your son, your only son, the one whom you love. That's the first time love is mentioned in Chumash. And it's not describing a story. It's describing the Rebbeinu Shaloylam testifying to Avram that he loves this boy. Take this boy that I know, Asher Ahafta, you love him. That's the first time love is articulated in the Chumash. That's very telling. Not Adam and Chav, even though I'm sure they loved each other. Real match made in heaven despite the complexities. Not... Avram and Sarah, although we know they loved each other. But Avram and his son Yitzchak, Asher Hafta. Yitzchak is the first recipient of love in Chumash. Now, what's the second time love is mentioned? Yitzchak and Rivka. The next week, Chayisara. Yitzchak meets Rivka, he marries her. And he loves her. Do you see the psychological pattern here? Who was the first one who was loved? Yitzchak. Who was the first one who loves? Yitzchak. And who does he love? He loves Rivka. And now you look the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time, and you'll see that's the cycle that continues. Rivka loves her son Yaakov. Yitzchak, who was loved, loves his son Esau. Yaakov, who was loved, loves his Wife, Rachel. And so it continues. He who is loved, loves. She who is loved, loves. Why is that? When I feel loved, I am capable of truly loving. When I never felt love, I don't really know how to love. I don't know what it is. The word doesn't exist in my mental dictionary. I can give what I have in my heart. What I don't have in my heart, I can't give. But there's something even deeper. When I don't feel loved, I'm not capable of giving because I'm always in a mode of receiving. And when you're in the mode of receiving, you can't give. In order to really give and give wholeheartedly, you have to be operating from a place of wholesomeness and confidence. If I have a void in my heart because I never felt loved and I don't now feel loved, I don't feel that I have that value. I don't feel the value in me that I have love. What happens psychologically is in every relationship, I am searching to get something. I need to get something out of the relationship. I need the validation. I need the recognition. I need the affection. I need the attention. I need somebody to tell me that I matter. 
And as long as I don't get that from the conversation, from the relationship, I have this void and I'm always searching for it. So I cannot really be here for you. I can't really listen to you. I can't suspend myself and open myself up to what you need because I am like a parasite whose bottomless pit of lack of confidence never gets filled and in every relationship I'm looking for it. So if I come home and my spouse speaks to me about the difficulties or the challenges of their day or their life of something else, it's hard for me to just listen to the other person and validate the other person's emotions because I'm waiting, I'm desperately craving for a compliment. I'm desperately craving for validation. I'm not operating from a wholesome place and therefore I can't give for real because I'm always receiving. And when I give, it's always with a condition so that hopefully right after that I'm going to receive. It's also true in education of children. Education means you operate from a very wholesome, internal, confident place. If I need my child to justify my life, if I'm looking for my child to give me validation, if I'm looking for my child to give me nachas, so I could say, I'm a successful person, I can never be there for my child. I always need my child to offer me, his father or his mother, her father or her mother, that which they need to build themselves up. Sometimes I watch a father, a parent, rebuking his child. Yankee! Homework! Or whatever the language is. Ten minutes later, of course he didn't do homework. Yankee! Homework now! Ten minutes later, of course he didn't do homework. Yankee! Homework right now! Ten minutes later, no homework. Now he loses it. I said you can do homework right now. If not, you get locked up in this room for three and a half hours. I'm not making a bar mitzvah for you. <laughs> I turn to the father. Say, tell me, you really care if he does homework? You never did homework a single day of your life. Thank God you never did homework. That's why you made it in real estate. <laughs> if you would know how to read and write and thus, you may have had a regular job. I think children should do homework, but I don't think you lost your fuse out of homework because of homework. You asked him to say a Dvartaita Friday night at the table four times. He did it. You freaked out. Really? Every time the Rav gets up and shoulder say Dvartaita, you fall asleep. Your ADD level is the 11 seconds. You really want a Dvartaita? I know you. He has to say a Dvartaita Shabbos. Why am I paying tuition? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Relax. What's going on here, really? One possible scenario is this. Let me tell you this. This is real stuff. This father or mother never got the validation they needed growing up. He never felt like a success story inside. Not outside, inside. Really wholesome, confident, comfortable in his own skin. He never felt his mother respected him. His father respected him. His older brother for sure didn't respect him. He doesn't feel his wife respects him. Certainly his in-laws don't respect him. Finally, he has a 10-year-old boy. Finally, he will respect him. And now this 10-year-old boy, the chutzpah, he's not doing homework. So when he's screaming at his 10-year-old boy, you know who's screaming at whom? A 7-year-old wounded kid is screaming at another 10-year-old boy. Kabed esavicha vesimecha doesn't only mean respect your father and mother. It means respect your fatherhood and motherhood. Respect yourself as a father. You're not a child. 
If I'm being mechanic my child from a place of weakness, insecurity, I can't be there for my child. I'm busy turning my child into the success story that will make me feel good about myself. Gesundheit, go do things to feel good about yourself, but your child is not that person. Your child wasn't created to make you feel like the person you need to become. Your child has their unique shlichas, their unique neshama. Rabbi Nishleim gave you the privilege to polish this diamond, not to make it a diamond that should reflect my own insecurities and be able to fill my voids. To be a spouse, to be a parent, I must operate from a place of inner, unwavering confidence, dignity, unshakable wholesomeness. What did the Kotzke Rebbe say? If I am I because you are you and you are you because I am I, I am not I and you are not you. But if I am I because I am I and you are you because you are you, then I am I and you are you. And now we can begin to have a relationship. So often what's happening in our lives is there's no I and there's no you. There's no boundaries. I don't know who I am. I need you to define the I. And my I is always going through changes based on your expectations. And based on your comments. There's no I. If there's no I, I can't really give. I can never suspend myself. I can't afford to suspend myself. For me, emotional suspension for a moment is suicide. Emotionally. I can't listen to you. I have too much bogging me down because I don't like myself. Yitzchak was loved. And therefore, he could love. When I can tune in and realize, Neshama shenasata bitahirihi, Avas Hashem or Avarabba, whatever Nusach you say. Hashem loves me unconditionally. My soul is impeccable and flawless. Nobody needs to justify it and nobody needs to validate it. My neshama is a chelik eloika mimal mama, just like nobody needs to validate Hashem. Nobody needs to give approval to my soul and say, oh, you got a compliment, now you're a good person. Somebody criticized you, now you're a horrible person. Some people, depends on the compliments and criticism they get, their self-image sometimes fluctuates 75 times a day. I can educate from that place. I could teach from that place. I can be a spouse from that place. I can be a human being from that place. I'm dispensable. I'm volatile. I'm like on a seesaw all day. I'm not firm. There's no I. I am I because you are you. You are you because I am I. The Halakim is Richard Magid says. It says in Pirkeyavis, what does that mean? The covet of your friend should be as precious as your own. Ask the Magad. We would think in Pirkeyavis, the Tana might say, your own covet shouldn't be that precious at all. He says, no, your covet is important. The covet of your friend should be as precious as your own. Says the Magad of Mizrich, you have to interpret the Mishnah a little differently. The covet your friend gives you should be as precious as the covet you give yourself. Imagine I finish my speech here, okay? I don't get an applause. Nobody applause. I go home. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And for the next five hours, I'm rehashing my speech, criticizing myself. And I come home, and I say, you know what? I'm going to do it over again. And I give the speech over, and I give myself a standing ovation for 10 minutes. 
in order to get dignity. We all understand how foolish and ridiculous it is. You know why? It's worthless. It's meaningless. It says, The covet that somebody else gives you should be as valuable as the covet you give yourself. It's meaningless. Of course, I love compliments. Of course, we like compliments. It's great to get compliments. Enjoy it, appreciate it. But that defines who you are. Compliments don't make you. Criticism doesn't destroy you. And if they do... That means I have no etzem, I have no core. And if I have no core, how can I be in a healthy relationship? There's no I to be in the relationship. I saw a t-shirt, I'm very easy to get along with once you learn to worship me. <laughs> if that's the nature of the relationship, there's no relationship. A relationship requires that Yitzchak should be loved. And when Yitzchak is loved, then Yitzchak can love. I was dealing last week with a couple that came to see me. And uh, it was painful to see how people are sometimes so not ready to look at themselves in the mirror. Not because they're bad people. Because they don't know. They don't know better. They're so terrified subconsciously. The greatest, one of the greatest things you could do for a relationship is develop the courage to know who you really are and to find out what really makes you tick or what doesn't make you tick. Some of us are driven by such deep fears and insecurities, but we don't know them throughout our lives and we're always responding from that place. I know a guy, a fellow, every time his wife would ask him to do something, he would get angry at her. Always. Always. I happen to know the couple. She's a very, very able, nice, very nice person. And he's also a very nice person. She would ask him to do something. Pleasantly, he would go crazy inside. He didn't explode, but he imploded. And then once a week or once in two weeks, he would explode. You know how that happens. You keep it and keep it and keep it and keep it. And then, nuclear explosion. And I understood. It's not, she, she wasn't asking him to climb, uh, to run the marathon, although it would have been a good idea for him. <laughs> she wasn't asking him every week for a new shaitu. <laughs> she wasn't asking him every month to buy a new house, the one with the jacuzzi and the pool. She was asking him, can you pick up a bottle of milk? Can you pick up the baby? Can you take out the garbage? Regular things. He would leave the house. Remember to close the door. Lock the door. He would freak out. And then I realized what it was. He grew up in an environment where he believed that he was controlled constantly. Nobody ever gave him space. It's irrelevant if it was right or wrong, but that's what he felt. He was seeing his wife as a replica of the other people in his childhood who were controlling him. So it had nothing to do with her. He was not responding to her. He was responding to his own inner pain that was never resolved. He feels essentially that he has no legitimacy in this world. He's a robot to be controlled. His wife says, close the door when you go out. He doesn't hear close the door. You know what he hears? You're a shmata. You're a nobody. You're here just to follow orders. Pick up wine for Shabbos. He doesn't hear wine, Shabbos, pick up, we need wine. The baby is crying, pick up the baby. He doesn't hear the baby is crying, let's pick up the baby. What he hears is... You follow commands and I'm the one who gives these commands. He's resenting his wife. It has nothing to do with his wife. He's not resenting his wife. He thinks he's resenting his wife. He is 
confronting his own void that he never dealt with. And it's not his wife's fault. She thinks he's upset at her. He's not upset at her. He thinks he's upset at her. She thinks he's upset at her. She thinks he's a horrible, abusive husband. He's not. He's a wounded soul. But he never confronted it. And the same is true the other way around. A woman with her own stuff. When a couple could start identifying these patterns, it's very powerful. Not because you heal overnight, but you become aware of it. If I could say, you know what? What you just say, what you just said made me feel. Made me feel like I'm worthless. You didn't make me feel worthless. What you said made me, because of my experiences, feel that I'm worthless. That communication is the genesis of real recovery. We're not going to resolve it, but we'll become aware of it. Wow. But many people could be married, can I inherit for 60, 70 years, and never articulate this to themselves once. They're just like, at some point, they're like, oh. you know that sigh in the kitchen, here he goes again, or here she goes again, without ever really confronting the reality. I was at a bar mitzvah. The father of the mitzvah boy asks me to come dance with him in the middle, in the dance floor. I'm dancing with him. He's crying. I say, Favos Veinstu, why are you crying? I thought he was crying for the bar mitzvah, you know, the simcha. I saw he wasn't. He looks at me and he says these words, Rabbi Jacobson, did anything come out of me useful? I'm like, what? It's your son's bar mitzvah. Look at your beautiful family, you have a beautiful wife, five beautiful children, such a beautiful community, good friends. You heard your son's pshetos, beautiful. What do you mean if anything came out of you? He says, when we were in yeshiva together, where we were classmates, there was somebody who came over to me twice, and he said, you're wasting your time here. Nothing will ever come out of you. So he says, Rabbi Jacobson, tell me tonight, was that man right? I looked at him and I said, this happened 30 years ago. He looks at me crying and he says, not a single day goes by that I don't think about what that person said. At his son's bar mitzvah. You know, people are eating sushi, drinking wine, power of cheesecake, whatever you're doing, checking their emails. I never understood people doing that. That's other people's symptoms, but whatever. And he's dancing, but he's crying. Why? Because 30 years ago, somebody made a comment to him in yeshiva, and he carries it every day, and he wants to know if he's worth anything. But let me tell you something. He's lucky. You know why? He's aware of it. He's aware of it. How many people carry these things around and they're unaware of it? but they still respond to it. They operate from that place. They get angry at their children based on that. They get angry at their spouse based on that. They're miserable based on that. And they don't even know what it is because it's deeply, deeply buried in their subconscious. They never had a chance to expose it. Yitzchak was loved and therefore he could love. I must discover my unshakable love from Hashem that nothing can ever take away, then I'm capable of loving. I'm going to conclude with one more insight thing since my time is probably up. Yes, more than up. I'm going to conclude with one more insight. And then those who want, you can ask questions if you wish. And this insight will be Be'ezer Hashem.
short and brief. It's not a short insight, it's a very deep insight, but I'm going to try to cover it in four and a half minutes. Blee Nedin. You all know this story, it's one of the most, you have to say, in simple English, one of the craziest stories that ever happened. Okay? You get married, you're under the chuppah, you're covered, Hariat Mekodeshes, you go to dance, you go home, there was a blackout that night in New York, you don't see the person in your house, you wake up in the morning, and you see the wrong person in the room. That's exactly what and where we all come from. Yaakov Avinu loves Rachel, he's marrying Rachel, the night of the wedding, she's changed for Leah, there's a badekinish, he doesn't see her, it's before Edison's days, there's no electricity, nobody lit a candle, he goes home, I quote the Pasuk in Vayetzeh, he consummates the marriage, Vayar Baboyker, dawn breaks, sun rises, Yaakov Avinu takes a look and he goes, whoops, it's the wrong one, Vihinehi Leah, Wow, whoa, whoa, whoa. Comes to Lavan, Lamarimi Sami, it's immoral, it's not Mahadrin to marry off the younger before the older. That's how you know you're dealing with a crook. You confront him and he makes you feel guilty. Yaakov says, Can I marry Rachel? Of course, another seven, you'll marry another seven years of work. Vayev Gamas Rachel Mileya. He loves Rachel much more than Leah. Vayar Hashem Kisnu Aleya. I never understood the story. Let's face it, this is not an isolated couple in Honolulu that he married. This marriage is the Shoyrish of Yisrael. Every person sitting here in this room is a descendant probably of Yaakov and Leah, which was a mistaken marriage. Maybe this is where all of our issues come from. <laughs> Why did the Rebbeinu Shalom have the Yisrael, the seed, the patriarch and matriarch of Am Yisrael to come about by mistake. And it gets worse. At every wedding, there's a badekinish. The chasen veils the bride. Why? It's brought in Svarim because Leah was veiled. I would say we should make a minute at every chasen, you unveil the bride to make sure you see. It's like we're almost perpetuating what happened. Under the chuppah, he puts the ring on her finger, he says, Arguably, it's the most important moment of the whole marriage. The moment they get married, he doesn't see her. She doesn't see him. For all he knows, it could be Hillary. <laughs> that was a joke. But you get the point. It's a chuppah. Look. Let her look. Let him look. What's going on here? It's a very strange mice. <laughs> now I'm supposed to answer this in three minutes, right? <laughs> but you're all very, very bright and intelligent. Both... Uh, intellectually and emotionally, so you'll get it in three minutes. The story of Rachel and Leah is a story about every single marriage. Rachel represents the spouse we dream about. Leah represents the spouse we get. Every one of us has a Rachel and a Leah, both men and women. The word Rachel in Hebrew, anybody knows what Rachel means? A sheep, a you. You know the word Leah means. Parsha Shmois, Nilu Mitzrayim, anybody? Mitkai, exhaustion. Who names their daughter exhaustion? <laughs> Did you name your daughter Leah? You should be fine. 
Exhaustion. Wow. How empowering. I want to know what your therapist has to say about that. Maybe it's equal to naming your son Yaakov or Heel. And his father is Yitzchak, a joke. It's like, great. You know? You're a joke, he's a heel, and she's exhausting. It's wonderful. That's how the generations travel. Rachel is Hashem Saleh. It says in Kabbalah, Rachel is 238. The gematria of Rachel, it's the same gematria like the words by Yehi'er. There was light. Rachel was beautiful. You fast her, not only on the outside, on the inside. It's a beautiful girl. She was the life of a party. She was the light of the party. The gematria of Yehi'er is Rachel. Like a sheep, a white, beautiful, bright, serene sheep. A shepsala, a good skite. A good skite, that's what she was. Everyone loved her. She loved the world. The world loved her. Leah Oigewald. Leah was an exhausted. She took her parents on a journey. I'm telling you, love them became white because of Leah. Very fast. <laughs> what was Leah exhausted about? But when she was a young girl, she wasn't marrying Esau yet. The reason they said she's going to marry Esau is because she would understand Esau. And you know why she would understand Esau? Because she was similar to him. She was as complicated as Esau. But she and Esau went in different directions. Esau took his complexities and his struggles and he justified immoral behavior based on it. Leah took her struggles and said, Ah, this is my special path in Abayi Hashem. They were very different types of people. Rachel is the spouse of our dreams. It's the spouse of our imagination. The picture-perfect chassin you imagine, remember? Great guy. Unbelievable. Balmidis, Bentayra, Yerushamayim, humorous, fun, truthful, great guy. Or conversely, Leah represents the spouse of reality. And that could sometimes get us exhausted. But here's the trick. Here's the deal. In most cases, not in all cases, I have to say this again in today's world, not in, in most cases it turns out that Leah was meant for you. Rachel was a preparation to get to Leah. Because it's the Leah that challenges you to become the person you're capable of becoming. It's the Leah that really challenges you to go beyond your ego and create space for somebody else. It's the layer that really refines us if we work on ourselves. It's the layer that challenges us to go deeper into our neshama and find a profound relationship with Hashem which allows us to have a real respect for our other half. Because what is the greatness of a relationship if not the space we create for others? With all of the challenges, drama, mystique, blessing, and difficulty involved. That's why we do about Bethanesh by the wedding. We do about Bethanesh by the wedding. It's one of the most romantic statements in Judaism. What the Chassan is telling the Kala is, I am committed to love not only the part of you that I see, but also the part of you that I don't see now. I know that life changes people. I know that life exhausts people. I know that life brings us to all types of places. I'm committed to love not only Rachel, but also Leah. Yaakov, 3,700 years later, is with Leah, not with Rachel. Yaakov is buried with Leah, not with Rachel. Ultimately, Rachel and Leah merge into one in our marriages, where the two become one. 
But I am committed to be able to create a relationship not only with the part that I see, also with the part that I don't see. This is what allows a relationship to thrive. When I can create space not only for Rachel and Leah. Rachel I naturally love. Leah I often hate. You know why? It challenges me. We don't like things that challenge us. We like things that fit in to our expectations. We want the spouse, we want the child, we want Hashem to fit into our imagination. If life would have been that simple, that's the Rachel part of life. Some things are exactly the way we imagine them. The you know, the Bar Mitzvah turned out exactly as you expected, sure. But mu- mu- much of life is Leah. And initially we resent it. It's like, get out of here. But if you go a little deeper and you realize that life is about a Badekanesh, it's about discovering the beauty that's not seen. It's about discovering the depth of Leah. Leah was deeper than Rachel. It says that the Shurish and the Shama of Leah, it says the Zoya was deeper than the Shurish and the Shama of Rachel. Leah is called Alma de Iskasia, the hidden world. Rachel is called Alma de Iskasia, the revealed one. When I have the courage to open up and expand my horizons and create space for Leah, then I am on the path to creating not only a superficial relationship, but a very deep, meaningful, and wholesome relationship. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.